map, whatever you have to get, do to get there, to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be beginning in verse 11 and work our way through uh, verse 32. That's a lot of verses, and I'm long-winded, but I'll try my best to uh, not be that way. I, uh, it's it's the, the Sundays when I uh, am called to preach that I realize how uh, deeply thankful I am for a pastor and shepherd who preaches the word so faithfully each week. Um, that's not to be a suck-up. That's legitimately <laughs> uh, because it is uh, the most labor-intensive and heart-wrenching thing that you have to go through throughout the week. Because as you read the word, you realize that you, that in this case, you are the older brother. Uh, you are prideful and need to repent. And so I, uh, I am, I'm thankful uh, to him. Uh, I also realize that I don't get anxious in front of large crowds, but when it comes to preach, uh, I am wrecked with anxiety because of what this is. This is the word of God. This isn't just some book written by a bunch of old dead guys. No, this is, this is what the one who made all things wants us to hear. And so uh, I am currently three hours sleep, four cups of coffee in, and uh, hopefully Holy Spirit driven to uh, <laughs> preach this morning. If you would stand in reverence of the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking through 11 through 32, but uh, for to this morning's uh, reading, I'm going to read starting in verse 29. But the older brother answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. But you, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the lost can be found. And God, we are fearful that those who believe they're found can be lost. God, may we be a people who are found and astonished by it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and those who have not yet trusted in Christ this morning that our minds and our ears would be attentive to the words that you would have for us this morning. And God, may this scattered mind and unclean lips preach your word faithfully. In Christ's name and only through him can we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, when I was in high school, uh, often I would go and visit my, my buddy Nick at his locker in between classes. And so we'd go and we'd talk about this, that, and the other. It doesn't really matter what. Uh, and then we would sprint back to class because we realized that we have, you know, barely missed the bell and we're usually late, but that's not the point. But one day, I, 
I stopped listening to my buddy Nick talk and started listening to another conversation that was happening just down the way, which I realize is rude on two levels, leaving conversation and eavesdropping. <laughs> but the reason why my attention got drawn was not just because of my ADHD, but because of the salacious details that were being uh, told. These, these guys were laughing and joking about this crazy wild weekend that they had. One of them, their dads was out of town, and so he decided to have this rage, this raging party. Invited all these people, and they started bragging about all the alcohol that they drank, the drugs that were there, and then the girls that came, and the things that they did with them, or pretended to do with them at least, to, uh, to, to pretend like they were some kind of big man. And I remember just feeling this disgust in my stomach and turning over to my friend and saying, man, that is so stupid. I wouldn't do those things even if I weren't a Christian. And if you looked at my life at that time, you wouldn't have seen somebody who, you know, goes sneaks out of the house in the middle of the night to go and do only God knows what. I wasn't getting hammered with my buds. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't sleeping around. Like, that wasn't the kinds of things that my friends did because we weren't those kind of people. My idea of a wild Friday night was drinking a whole bunch of Mountain Dew, staying up till 2 in the morning playing video games with my friends. Like, it's just, it, I wasn't the party animal. But the reality is if you looked at all four of those men who stood in the hallway of Oldham County High School, you would have seen four lost sinners. Two of them knew they were lost and didn't care, and two of them thought they were found and didn't know it. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to this uh, group of people here. He's, he's continuing this line of the lost parables. So last week, if you were here, Pastor Jeremy preached on the lost sheep, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and now it's the parable of the lost sons. Uh, the, the titles to these, uh, if you look in your Bible, they're, they're not holy inspired scriptures. So when I say that, it, that this is inaccurately named as the parable of the prodigal son, I'm not a heretic. God didn't write that. Editors did. Uh, but I do think that 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 a more accurate reading would be the parable of the prodigal sons and the prodigal father. So we see that, uh, that he's talking to two very different groups of people here. If you go back all the way to verse 1, you don't have to turn there, he's talking to tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes. Tax collectors and sinners would have been uh, the people who, they cheated folks out of money. They were prostitutes. These were the drunkards. These were the people that if you're walking down the street with your kid and they, and they are headed your way, you're, you figure out a reason why you need to cross the street very, very quickly. And the Pharisees and scribes are the people that look a lot like us. They were the ones who uh, knew the Torah back and front. They, they could tell you any scripture at any point. They studied the word of God. They showed up every single Sunday, every single time the temple was open. They were there. They were helping their kids learn their Awana verses. That, they were the moral majority, conservative, socially, and religiously. They were the people that we would probably most identify with. They looked like they had it all together. And so he tells them this parable to communicate to them that the love and grace of God is overwhelming, overwhelmingly sufficient to save both the reckless runaway and the self-righteous do-gooder. Look with me in verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Stop. So here's what's happening. A guy's out working his fields. I don't know what you do on a farm. I've never worked a farm, really, but you, he's, he's feeding goats or something. And the son comes up, bops him on the arm, and says, Dad, give me my inheritance. 
Now, to you and me, even in our 21st century selfish modern sensibilities, we go, ooh, that's kind of awkward. Like, so we get zoomed into this really awkward family moment, right? But to the audience sitting in the room, this would have been unthinkable, right? Because the dad was the, was the head of the household. He, next to God, he is to be revered, respected, and obeyed. You do not talk to your dad this way. And so this, but, but it's not just that, because see, the way inheritance worked back then is you didn't just get like a blank check from your parents whenever they decided that you were mature enough to take over, right? This inheritance would have been the entire property that this father and the whole family owned. So this is their livestock, their crops, their, their barns, all the houses where all the siblings and their families lived in. This would have been a fairly sizable chunk of property. And the way this would have worked is, this, is the younger son would have received one-third and the older brother would have received uh, two-thirds. That's just the way it worked back then. But that did not happen until the father died. So this son is in no unsubtle way coming up to his dad and going, Dad, I couldn't care less about you. I wish you'd just go ahead and hurry up and die because I want the money. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do my own thing, be my own man, and do what I want with that. And so the Pharisees in the room and probably everybody else would have been like, oh, that boy deserves to be slapped. You can't talk to your dad that way. That's what any self-respecting Jewish patriarch would have done. Said, get your lazy self back out into the field. Don't ever talk to me again. You come at me like that again, you're not eating for a week. That's the kind of level of disrespect this is. And so they would have expected the father to do that. But what does he do? Continuing in verse 12, he divides the property between them. What a sorry excuse for a father. He's just going to let his kids talk to him that way. Right? That's what the Pharisees would have been thinking. So the son gets what he wants, but that's not the, the whole sum total of his master plan. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Aha, so now we see the full picture. So what he does is he gets this one third of the entire family property, right? This is, this is their livelihood. This is their income. This is their welfare. And he sells it to somebody else for a quick buck and then heads way off to do all kinds of things with all kinds of the wrong people. He wants to do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, and however he wants to do it. And so, and, and so he just squanders this property in this kind of reckless living. Now, we don't, we don't have to think hard about what this would have looked like, Right? He's, he's walking, in. this would have been in a Gentile land, which the Gentiles, Gentiles to the Jews were, were like dogs. Like they would spit at their feet when they walked past him if they saw them. They, it disgusted them. So the fact that he's even with Gentiles is, is in and of itself something that would have been socially very, very shameful. And so he's walking into Club Gentile with his nice Gucci robes on. <laughs> Y'all made me lose my spot. Come on, don't do that to me. <laughs> Buying the most expensive alcohol. He sees a group of ladies over there, and he's like, what's up? Come on, let's go. And he is the playboy of playboys. He's buying prostitutes. If your kids are in here, you don't have to explain that to them. They'll, you know, that's for later. <laughs> he's, he is just living it up. He is, he's doing all manner of things that you and I would look at and go, oh, gosh, what a disgusting, filthy sinner. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He's laying it on super thick for his audience. He's going, this guy's the worst of the worst. I didn't see the movie, and you should not see the movie because it's, it's not good to watch. But uh, 
the, the, that movie, The Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio, like just the debaucherous behavior that that guy does with the women and the drugs and all the, just, just being a disgusting person, that's who this guy is. He's a horrible, terrible person. But he keeps spending money day in and day out, living this debaucherous life, and what happens? Well, unsurprisingly, he loses it all, because that's what that kind of life does. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. This is desperation at its lowest point. His reckless rebellion lands him in a depressed desperation. He has nothing. Those nice clothes that he has are now just torn rags. This severe famine would have been the kind of famine where you walk outside and there's dead people in your front yard. Nobody has anything, much less this guy who's lost all of his money, who has no family around. He is completely and totally destitute. And so what does he do? He decides to try to fix it. Okay, I'm going to do something to make myself to, to, to make my situation better. And so he hires himself out out of desperation to one of the citizens. Now, hired himself out literally means joined to. So he would have been more like a slave, a servant to a Gentile pig farmer. Y'all ever been around pigs? They're nasty. They're disgusting. If you, if you drive, so my wife is from Madisonville, Kentucky, which is in western Kentucky. And on the way there, at some point, you pass, you, you pass a, a, a pig farm. Now, I've never seen this farm. I don't know where it is, but I know when I've arrived because it smells horrible. If, you know that little button that circulates the air in your car? Like, as soon as you pass that, just boom, that, that turns on so you don't have to let that nasty air in. Pigs are disgusting. But to Jews, they were untouchable. Literally, you didn't touch pigs. You, you didn't get around pigs. They would have made you ceremonially unclean, unfit to go into the temple of God to worship him. But this younger son is not just around pigs. No, he's wrestling them to try to get the scraps of food that they eat, that slop, just so he can satisfy the unending hunger that he has. And for some of you, you know this life. You've been there. You're having flashbacks right now to high school and college when you were living it up, doing whatever you want with, with whoever you wanted to. And you know the pain of that, that desperate desolation that you feel. You may have not been to this point where you literally have no money and nowhere to turn to, but you remember waking up in the morning, not remembering the night before, rolling over and going, who's that? You have those memories, and it fills you with shame and guilt even now. And some of you guys, that's not a far distant past. In a room this size, to be honest with you, there's probably some folks who are living that way right now. Because, and, and, and the thing is, we, we don't want to believe what, what the warning is here. That, that, that this kind of reckless rebellion leads to this kind of desperation because what sin does is it promises us freedom. It promises us freedom. We, in the heat and the fever of the moments of our rebellion, we're not thinking about the consequences, right? We, we are blinded to the reality of those consequences because that fleeting momentary pleasure of sin is so great. Our desires lead us to do what we want to do, not what God desires for us. Consequences be damned. I don't care what God says. 
this is what I want to do. And it always leads to a path of destruction. You leave it in your wake. Broken relationships, it even affects your health. You have an emptiness inside of you that you keep trying to fill with, with, with drink and with relationships. You're swiping, I don't know what you do on Tinder, but you swipe left and right on there to, to say yes, 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 no, and then you meet up and hook up and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and it never satisfies you because sin is ultimately always completely and totally disappointing. Uh, when I was in middle school and high school, there was a guy named Kyle, and Kyle and I weren't really close friends. Uh, he was just a guy that was there. He was a party animal, even in middle school. Uh, this is the guy that on his social media accounts, uh, as soon as that kind of rose to prominence, he was, every single one of him was like two keystone lights going, wow, you know, like that was this guy. He was nuts. Everybody loved him, loved to be around him. He was super fun, great athlete. Uh, he, he was the life of the party. And I remember in 2010, right before Melissa and I graduated, we got a phone call from uh, one of our mutual friends, and she said, hey, did you hear about Kyle? I said, no, I hadn't thought about that guy in like five years. She said, he died. I said, oh, that's awful. How'd that happen? Instead of a cocaine overdose, like a, a, a nice kid from Oldham County dying of a cocaine overdose, how does that happen? Well, see, he believed a lie that, that the pleasures of sin ultimately bring fulfillment, but what it brought him was the ultimate desolation. And so this, this reckless living brings about painful consequences in our life. And some of you may be feeling that right now. Like, you feel that painful consequence. In fact, you're kind of like, man, can this guy get done with this part? Because I'm ready to, like, I just want to crawl out of here. You feel it in your gut. But here's what I want you to know, and here's what the text would tell you as we, as we start to flip the page here, is that those painful consequences are not God's punishment on your life. It's actually a grace from God in your life. The, the God is gracious in allowing us to experience earthly consequences that hurt us so deeply so that we finally wake up and realize our desperate need for him. And that's exactly what happens to this younger son. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He realizes he's a moron. His, the slaves in his father's household have more than enough bread to eat, but he's eating the scraps reserved for pigs. This is the start, the kernel, the beginning of repentance, is acknowledging that you are a spiritual moron, that you don't have it all together, that you have made a wreck of your life. And then he moves on to resolve that he will get up and do something about it. So he realizes, he's going, oh gosh, it's like, he's, it's like he wakes up from a nightmare and realizes with clarity, oh, I've done something stupid. I need to do something about this. And so he resolves to go back to his dad and grovel at his feet. And see, and you know that this is real repentance because he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He acknowledges that he's not only broken his father's heart, but he's also broken the heavenly father's heart. He has withheld, he, he, he has not only escaped his father's rule, but also his provision. He has tried to get away from God's rule and provision as well. He realizes that his sin has, has uh, uh, distanced him from God. 
And so he says he's no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Maybe I can just get in as a servant. At least I'll have enough bread to eat. And what we see moving forward is that genuine repentance brings about reconciliation. Verse 20. He does something about it. He doesn't just sit there and think about it. He doesn't just resolve to do it and then sit around, you know, like he was in church. And like, how many times have you come here? Like, I'm going to get better. I'm going to get better. I'm getting better. And then you're just back in the same pattern. No, he actually does something about it. He he rises up and comes to his father. Now, the the audience here would have expected the father when seeing his son. Here's what they would. Here's the 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 picture they would have they would have put in their mind. This is likely what the son would have been thinking too. He's going to walk up to the door, knock on the door. His father's going to open it and go, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Cross his arms angrily, disappointed scowl on his face, going, what are you doing here? And he's going to get on his knees and plead and beg that he can just stay at the edge of the property. Just let me, just let, just let me get the scraps from your table. But that's not the kind of father this father is. Continuing in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I can just imagine the son, when his father sprints up to him and bear hugs and he's going, what is going on? Like, you know, he's not expecting this. He's expecting that to grovel. And so that's what he does. He goes, I can just imagine he's still kind of like in the air. Father, I've sinned. You know, he's really awkward about it. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, but the father doesn't even care what he's saying. He's not even listening. He's like, he says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Listen here, folks. If you're here today and you are crushed by your sin, if you identify with this younger brother, here's what God wants you to know. Just get up and turn towards him. Because he's not the kind of God that's going to stand in the doorway to heaven with his arms crossed, a scowl on his face, glaring at you with a furrowed brow at your muddy wreck of a life in anger and disappointment waiting for you to get your life right. No, he's standing at the property's edge, looking down the road, waiting for you to come across the horizon. That's it. Think about this. It says that when he was a long way off, that means the father was looking for him. He was going out day after day, waiting for his son to return, waiting for his son to return. And and the son would have been crawling his way back from the hunger and the pain. And what does he do? He doesn't wait for him to crawl all the way up so he can put his foot on his neck. He sprints to him and embraces him in love. That's the kind of father God is. He's the kind of father that runs to you in your deepest need and picks you up your sin-battered body. And carries you back home. The love and mercy of God overwhelms the sin of a man like the ocean overwhelms a grain of sand. Here's the good news. This son starts to realize as this happens that, that and, and what we learn from this parable is that you can do nothing and you do not have to please the father in, of your own 
effort. You just have to trust that Jesus is enough. That's it. You have to trust that Jesus' work of taking the wrath of God for you on the cross, taking the punishment of your sin, your real sin that really offends God, that, that, that really will send you to hell. Jesus took that on his shoulders. And that that is sufficiently pleasing to God. In Jesus, God is eternally pleased with you. And the Father, here's, look at what he does. He doesn't just hug him and kiss him. No, he brings him in full inclusion into the family. He grabs the best robe and clothes him in it. This would have been a robe of royalty, of the most high up political dignitaries. When they would come, that's the kind of robe you put on these, uh, these people. He puts it on his sin-stained son. This ring would have been the family ring that, that had their symbol on it, that gave the son authority as a son to make decisions. And the shoes would have been a luxury for the son to walk in grace. Sinner, here's the deal. God wants to robe you in the righteousness of Christ. He wants to put on the family ring on you, proving to the world that you are his true child. And he wants to put on the shoes of grace on your feet so that wherever you walk, you know that you can't fall far. That's the kind of love the father has for his repentant, reckless son. This fattened calf, this would have been, this would have been like a destination party. Like, all right, y'all, my son's home. We're packing up to Florida, and we are going to have a week-long party. That's what this would have been like. When sinners come in repentance to the Father, he, he throws a party in heaven. He celebrates over them. He rejoices over them. Now, this is the warm and fuzzy. This is, the, this is the parable of the prodigal son as we typically know it. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He's not, he's not stopping there because he has two audiences in mind. Remember, this part was for the tax collectors and sinners, those who know that they're not good. The other section of this parable is for the Pharisees and scribes, those who believe they're good enough to please God. And they are displayed by the arrogance of the older son. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, come on. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? He's bewildered. He doesn't get it. He has no understanding of, of what kind of love the father has. But the father says to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost. He was lost and is found. And so this brother has this anger towards his younger brother. He's, but he's not just angry at the younger brother. He's angry at the father. He hates the father. Imagine this. 
You are the older brother. You're working the field day and night, doing exactly what your dad told you. You've painted the barn three times since the sun's been gone. You, you, you hear loud music, and you walk up, and you look in the window and go, what is going on? And you find out that the guy who hasn't been around for two years to do any of the work is now being celebrated? You'd be mad, too. Like, if you, in your work, like, if you, let's just assume that we're all relatively hardworking. <laughs> that means some of you aren't. Uh, <laughs> the ones who didn't laugh. Uh, and, and, you're, and you're on the daily grind every single day. You're showing up 15, 30 minutes early. You're getting in good with the boss. You're making sure you got enough face time with him. You, when you are at work, you're at work. And that's what you're doing. You have no time for leisure. From 9 to 5, you are going to hammer it out. Okay? That's you. You walk into work one day. There's balloons everywhere. There's like, there's like those little like paper, whatever they are, little you know, triangles. I can't think of what they're called. Banners. There we go. Hanging. <laughs> <laughs> hanging all over the place because nobody in an office knows how to decorate for a party. <laughs> and, he, and you walk in, you go, what, is, what in the world is going on? Is it like pizza day? Like, you know, what's happening? And all of a sudden you see somebody laughing in the boss's office, and you're like, okay, like, you know, Craig is there. Why is Craig in the boss's office? Why are they so happy? Craig's the guy that should be getting yelled at because Craig doesn't do his work. Craig, I don't know who Craig is. If you're named Craig here, this isn't about you. I don't, Craig's just a name. Craig is the guy who spends half of his day scrolling on Facebook and Instagram. He shows up to work late. Sometimes he just doesn't come at all. And you have, nobody has any idea where he is, and he doesn't call in. You're the one who's been working really hard. And then Craig gets the promotion. You'd be furious at the boss. Like, what are you doing? I'm the guy that does all the work. Why does this idiot get the job? Why does he get, get, get the benefits? That's, that makes sense to us, right? That's the logic of the world. If you put in the work, you get the benefit. But that's not the economy of the kingdom of God. Because it's not those who put in the work that get the benefit of being God's child. It's the ones who realize that there's already one who's done the work for them. Right? So when Jesus is talking about the second son, he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, the church crowd, those who show up on Sunday mornings. Right? That's who he's talking about. You're here on Sunday morning. You're not out partying right now. This is who, we are the kind of people that Jesus wants, wants to talk to right now. Right? Don't miss sight of that. Because he wants the conservative, moral, church-going people to, to read this and go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, well, he should be mad. He hasn't done anything. But Jesus here is refining and flipping the way that we think about the kingdom of God, the way we think about sin. See, if we were to define sin, we would say things like violating God's law, disobeying God, not doing what God wants us to do, missing the mark. You've probably heard that one before. And all that's true. It is going against what God desires for your life. But it's not just that. It's not just avoiding certain things and then doing other things. No, Jesus goes all the way down into the core of who we are and says sin is not just avoiding the wrong things and doing the right things. It's not just doing the bad things. It's doing good things for the wrong reason. He's getting down into our motivation, our intention, the reason why we do what we do. He's getting to your heart. Because you can do all kinds of good things. 
You can do all kinds of good things. You can, you can serve in the kids' area when nobody else wants to. You can stand out in the 25-degree weather and, and, and park cars. You can go and serve at a local nonprofit. You can do all kinds of good things, but have the absolutely wrong heart full of selfishness and self-entitlement. See, both sons are actually the exact same. There is no distinction between them. The only difference is the way they express their heart. The younger son, he comes up, he's selfish, and, and we know, at least he's honest about it, right? He comes up to his father and goes, give me my inheritance. I want it, like a little baby. The older brother's a little bit more subtle. He wants his inheritance too. That's all he wants. He wants the benefit of being around the father, but not caring about the father. And he proves that in verse 29. When he sees all this, and his father's saying, hey, come in and celebrate with us. He answers him, and he says, look, do you know when someone says that to you, they are mad as fire at you. Look here, bucko. That's what video games will get you, you know? Not the cool kid. These many years I have served you but I never disobeyed your command. He hates his dad. He's saying the exact same thing that the, that the younger brother was saying in the, in the beginning of the story. How could you do this? I'm tired of living under your rules. I've done all this stuff for you. Gosh, I wish you were dead. It's the exact same heart, exact same motivation. The difference in the, in the older son is his obedience was not out of love. It was, it was so that he could leverage his morality to get the benefit of the father the self-righteous heart does not love god but leverages god to get what it what it wants that's the truth it believes that it, the, the self-righteous heart or the self-righteous person believes that their morality or adherence to what god wants god's desire will impress god and therefore receive blessing from god If you work hard enough, God will love you. If you work hard enough, good things will come your way. That's the prosperity gospel, and it's satanic. And, we, and most of us would, would go like, yeah, I don't believe the prosperity gospel. I don't believe that God will make me healthy and wealthy and all those kinds of things. But we believe it kind of. You want to know how you know that you struggle with a self-righteous heart? Here's the litmus test. When things don't go your way, you get angry with God, and you question if he loves you, if he cares for you. Does your loyalty to God make you more deserving than other people? Right? Like, you're showing up. You're doing all the right stuff. You're having, you're having BFG in your house. You're going. You're, you're cooking the meals for folks. You're showing up to people's houses when, when things go bad. You're doing all the right things. But then you look on Facebook, and like that person over there who doesn't even do anything for God, their life is so much better. This is one that hits me. Is, is I have some, uh, I, I've seen some folks who, who are not Christians. Like, they will tell you they're not Christians, and their kids are way more obedient than mine. What's up with that? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you look at others and you think, why are they being blessed? They don't know God. They don't love God. They're not doing anything for God. I'm over here doing the work. That's because you're self-righteous. Self-righteous people serve God to receive blessing from God, but true children of God serve him as an overflow of their love for him. For, for, for the true disciples of Jesus, obedience to God is not a way to curry favor with him. 
right? It's not that you're just buddying up with them. They're like, hey, I did these things for you. Can I get a little something back, you know? That's not the way that works. It's so that we can worship him because of who he is and what he has done. Here's the reality for every single person in this room. You've never had a day where God went, wow, look at them. They're getting it together. You've never impressed God. Even in your best moments, even when you were the superhero of the day, that was still, like the scripture would say, a menstrual rag before him. You, here's the deal, for some of us, we, we think we're good people because we're not as bad as some other folks, right? And so we kind of pride ourselves on our morality. We vote the right way. We, we, we yell out on Facebook about the right side of the right issues. But your morality is not going to get you any closer to God. In fact, your morality may be the thing that's keeping you from God. Because if you're trusting in your own morality to rescue you, then you are trusting not in Jesus but in yourself. And that's what's required for, for a true, real relationship with God. You need the grace of Jesus Christ just as much as any other person that you would look at and evaluate on your own little uh, thermometer of moral goodness. The de- here, here, here's to kind of sum up that, that, that point. The degree to which you trust your own ability to please God is the degree to which you dishonor the one in whom God is well pleased, Jesus That's the only person who's ever lived that God looks at and goes, yes, he said it. When Jesus was baptized and he he came up out of the water, God shouted with great praise, this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. Outside of Christ, God has never said that about you. That's harsh. That's the, that's the offense of the gospel. Why is that? Why does God hate self-righteousness? Why does he hate pride? Why does he hate people who think that they can deserve, who think they deserve more than what he's giving them? Why does he hate it when people uh, seek to elevate themselves to get to him? It's because it cheapens the cross. It cheapens his grace. If you are able to, on your own, stand before a holy God and be declared righteous, then Jesus died for absolutely no reason. The reality is that the kind of people that get to heaven aren't the ones who do all the right things but they realize that they can't do anything right and they trust wholeheartedly in Jesus. Now, it's real easy to say that. Like you might be hearing, like, amen, I believe that. But let's let the rubber hit the road for a second. A few days ago, a group of men went into two mosques, an Islamic mosque in Saudi Arabia, killed 49 people. And I got off of Twitter a while ago because I was tired of the nonsense. But I still somehow figure out about all the stupid things people say somehow. I don't know why. And I saw this one that said, it was from a, from a Christian. He may be. I don't know. It's kind of the point of the sermon, isn't it? Forgive even the worst of us. He said, well, good. It's about time that those wicked people got what they deserved. Y'all, come on. Those are 49 souls that didn't trust in Christ. That's 49 souls that are now in hell. Presuming they didn't call out to Jesus in the last second. But even the men 
who performed that atrocity, even if they repented, turned away from what they think and how they, if they, if they saw the wrong and the error in their ways and they turned to Jesus, even they would be welcomed into the family of God with open arms. Now that's a little abstract, right? Like that's a kind of out there, like, okay, that's probably not going to happen all the time. It doesn't hit home per se. The other day, Melissa was, was sitting, I think we sat on the couch together talking about stuff and she was kind of distraught about some things that she had read. And she'd see, she saw news article after news article of these horrible cases of child abuse. And she was asking if I'd seen it. I said no. And before I could get out, and I don't want to know because that kind of stuff just makes me sick, she started telling me about it, which is totally fine. Not to rag on you. It's good. We need to process that together. And I can't even say, like, I'm not even going to say what the guy did. I'll, I'll try to be as clean about this horrible thing as, as I can. But this man violated his girlfriend's 10-month-old, and she died. Like, what level of wickedness and perversion is that? The, the question for us, the question for us is, what would we do if that guy walked into our door? What would you do if he showed up at your house at Bible Fellowship Group and he says, this is something I did? Obviously, you would say, you're not getting near my kids. But how would you respond to that? What if he said, and I want to trust Jesus? Would you go, yes, praise Jesus? Or would you go, yeah, probably not. That ain't real. You're just afraid of what's going to happen to you. scandal of the gospel is that when answering the question, can that man even be saved, the answer is a resounding yes. Even if, even if a man like that repents and trusts in the righteousness of Jesus. Because here's the reality, y'all. Jesus' blood is sufficient for every sin of every person who has ever lived and will ever live. It doesn't mean that, it's, that it has saved everyone, but it is, it is sufficient to save everyone. It is sufficient for every sinful rendezvous of unfaithful passion. It is sufficient for every night of drunken stupor. It is sufficient for every venomous word that someone's hurled at their spouse. It is sufficient for every rage-filled hand that has struck a child in the face. And it's sufficient for every deep and dark thing that you've done, thought, or said that nobody knows about, that if it came on that screen, you would sprint out of this doorway and never come back again. It is sufficient for all of those things. And if you don't believe that, then you're suggesting that the blood of the eternal Son of God is insufficient to please God. You believe that Jesus only gets us a part of the way there and that you're good enough to pick up his slack. You join with the Pharisees, the enemies of God, and saying, thank God I'm not like them. Thank you, God, that you have made me a different kind of person. And you will ride your self-righteousness straight into the mouth of hell. See, y'all, there is no us versus them. There's no, there's no sinner and righteous. We're not the righteous camp. The group of people in here are not good people. If you spend enough time with us, you'll learn that eventually. There is one camp. Without God, there's one camp. Unrighteous. That's it. No mas. 
no other different kind of person. But there are, but in the kingdom of God, there are those who are unrighteous and, and stay in their unrighteousness and those who are unrighteous and dipped in the blood of Jesus. You are more wicked than you can ever imagine. Saints. But you are also more loved than you could ever hope or dream. This is the reality. This is the reality of everyone who's in Christ. We're all the same. No matter what you've done, no matter how prideful you are, no matter how degenerate you are, if you are in Christ, if you are placing your faith in Jesus, you're clean. Done. Period. End of the sentence. Now, I don't identify with the younger brother all that much. I had all kinds of secret sins, all kinds of things that I, that I would be ashamed to tell you, but as far as the out and open, just woohoo, reckless abandon, don't give a rip about what anybody thinks, that wasn't me. I was too, too prideful for that. No, I am the older brother over and over and over again. That phone call I got from my friend about Kyle, I would love to tell you I was heartbroken for him and thought to call his parents to pray for them. Here's what I really thought. Well, serves him right. That makes sense. When I was in eighth grade, my, uh, a guy named Cam Potts came to our youth group. And it was one of those moments where, what is that guy doing here? Now, it's eighth grade. Like, you know. Actually, you can do a lot of horrible things in eighth grade. So, yeah. He, he was that guy. He was the guy that was, that was really well-liked and and, 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 but he wasn't a Christian. He was just kind of a jerk. I hope he doesn't watch this. <laughs> be awkward. And I remember one day in youth group, during, during a response time, they had like this, this cross with candles lit. That was like a thing you did in youth group back then. Like, it was, you know, it was cool to do that then. And he is prostrate face down on the carpet, just weeping. And I was going, what a show that is. That ain't real. What's he doing here? That man became my roommate in college. And that man is the one that when I came back home from a night of drinking, went, what were you doing last night? Why didn't you come back? That man is now a pastor who preaches the word of God faithfully every single day. And so me, the older brother, became the younger brother, and then just I just flip-flopped back and forth. Here's reality, though. Jesus' blood is sufficient. This is reality. This is what we as a church are going to believe. And we are going to continue to embrace this truth, and we're going to see all kinds of people walk through these doors. People that you're going to go, oh, man, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to be around them. And many of them are going to make the self-righteous very uncomfortable. Because they're not going to have clean, sanitized, good-looking lives. But what we're not going to do is we're not going to be a church that huddles together to protect ourselves from those kinds of people. Believing that we're good, moral, Bible-believing do-gooders. No, we're going to be a church that understands that there's no us versus them, but there's only one in Christ. There's only the unrighteous clothed in the righteousness of Christ, washed by his blood. So whether you're here this morning and you're the self-righteous older brother or the, or the re reckless runaway, here's true. This is true. You can come home. There's hope for the self-righteous too. Notice the father doesn't kick him out. 
There's, there's not an end to the story. He can go into the party. If he repents of his pride and walks in, he can, be celeb- he can celebrate with the sinner. So sinner, come home. The father wants to throw a party for you. And self-righteous, come home. The father wants to give himself to you. Let's pray.